When you have something important to communicate, what do you do? How do you tell them what you want to say? Parents, when you want to tell your son or your daughter something extremely important, how do you say it? How do you approach the conversation? For those of you, maybe you remember the time when you first fell in love. Man, how were you going to tell her, or how were you going to tell him? When I first fell in love, I believe I was in fourth grade, and it was none other than my teacher. And I had the hots for her. And I remember every day, my friend Nick and Will, we would sit there in class and just stare. And we felt like we had something important to tell her. At least I did. And I wanted to communicate to her. I wanted to tell her how much I loved her. So what did I do? And my boldness and zeal as a fifth, fourth grader at Lake Center Christian School, I sat there during class and I wrote my first love letter. And it was, it was detailed. Why I loved her, the, my thoughts about her, she was pretty. She was only 22, I think. I mean, I had a shot, right? You're saying there's a chance. So I wrote down a love letter to her to communicate to her because I had something important to say to her. And I am still waiting for the reply. I remember very clearly right after the last day of school, I wrote down this love letter, I ran over, I threw it on her desk, and I beelined it out the door, hoping that she would see the love letter and what? Reply to me. Hoping that she would feel the same way I felt about her. Spoiler alert, don't try that. Pretty sure it creeped her out. But today, what we are talking about is none other than adultery. Oh, man. Why would we talk about adultery? Why would we bring up such a topic, right? I mean, I just pr prayed for the Browns. And some of you judged me for doing that. I hope you feel convicted. You prayed for the Browns, maybe. Why would we talk about adultery? What importance does it have? If you're new here, we are in this series on Proverbs, Timeless Wisdom. We've talked about fearing God. We've talked about what God hates today, none other than adultery, Welcome to church, and it's just going to get more and more specific. Next week, we will talk about wealth and greed and generosity. Week after, we're going to be talking about parenting, marriage, uh, drunkenness, anger. We are not holding back in this series. Why is that? Well, for two reasons. Number one, we want to teach the whole counsel of God, the entire Bible. We don't want to shy away from certain topics and number two, I believe this series is important is because you are extremely busy people, are you not? I mean, most of you sit here writing down lists, you, de you, you, you know, disguise, I'm taking notes, but you're writing down your list for the week. And for today, you have so much to do. And I know if I'm busy, some of you are laughing, you're like, how did he know? You write down things to do and we want to respect your time. We don't want to shy away from anything that is in the Bible, the top four things that all married couples fight about, and it is all. Number one is communication. Oh, if we could just learn how to talk to each other. Number two, in-laws. Oh, 
I got stories, man. I got stories. Number three is money. If we fight about anything, it's about money. Whose is whose? What is mine? What is yours? And number four, and if you've been through premarital counseling, you would know it is sex. Just argue about certain things. Why are these things that even in a marriage relationship we would fight about, but then even if you're not married, things like that, when it is of most importance to you, it causes arguments or uh, conflict, does it not? Before we jump into Proverbs, before we jump into Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, if you have your Bible or phone, if you want to be there, you can. I'm going to kind of be all over the place today, but everything will be on the screen as normal. Um, What I want to be very clear, very clear, right out of the gate, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, the writer says this, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Why do I read that verse before I teach a message on adultery? Because the writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, penned this addressing a church and the sexual sin that was within the church. A lot of times, I'm bringing it up twofold, a lot of times there becomes an issue with the church where we believe we want people outside the church to act like us uh, simply so it would be more convenient for us. If insiders expect outsiders to act like insiders, they will never be insiders. It's kind of like when you show up to someone's house and you're looking for the Wi-Fi code. Oh my gosh, and it's got 19 different letters, lowercase, upper, and you're kind of like, why don't you call them and change it to like Duma 10? Like, I don't know. You expect, the language is unrecognizable. Second reason I bring up that verse. Jesus wants all of us to follow him. I believe that wholeheartedly. I believe following Jesus makes you better at life and makes life better in every regard. But, but the last thing I would want to communicate today is this. Just because a lot of us may be sitting here and being like, adultery, man. I would never, I would never do that. We still, all of us, individually need a savior. I would never want someone to say, well, at least I don't act like those Christians and I've never committed adultery. So when I get to heaven, God says, you might as well come on in. You're better than them, knuckleheads. That all of us would need to look to Christ, that God judges those outside. And on this type of sermon, right, it's easy, very easy to get the binoculars out or the magnifying glass and just see other people, other stories, and to see nobody but myself. To say, I would never. I remember, not, maybe not the first time, but the first time I took it seriously. It was with my friends, and they were talking about what other people did uh, in high school on the football team. I was, I believe, an eighth grader, and they were talking about what the seniors or the juniors were doing and how they were, you know, smoking pot, or maybe they were drinking, they were sleeping around. What was the phrase that I said? I would Never do that. Little did I know that I would eat those words when I found myself in the similar types of sin. I would never. We'll learn uh, from the Apostle Peter, a follower of Jesus. He looked at him and he said, you will be the first to deny me. Or you will deny me before the rooster crows. What does Peter say? I would never. 
And then he follows up and he does deny Christ. So there are, I believe, a few types of people for this sermon or for this talk, and I know it's already heavy, and I apologize for that, but it's just the way it flows, that some of you would say, it has happened in my life. Whether it was myself, it was my spouse, it was the reason we had a divorce. And when you bring this up, I'm already frustrated, I'm already mad, I'm already upset. Why would the church, blah, 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 blah. There are some of us who today, it can, serve, it can serve us really well just to be a warning, just to serve, hey, I don't want to say I would never, but I need to say I hope I never do, and God, would you help me? I believe, I brought this up last week, and I thought I should have talked about it a little bit more, but this phrase or this question we all need to ask ourselves: is my entire life under the book? And I held up my Bible like this and I said, and when I talked about hands that shed innocent blood, is every part of my life under the book? Even as a pastor, someone who likes to read the Bible, thinks the Bible's great, sometimes unknowingly I'll do this. And I'll say, well, what's right for me is right for me. Proverbs sixteen twenty five says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, Mike Duma, there's a way that seems right to me and its end is the way of death. That no matter what the conversation is or what Proverbs talks about, it says in Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. That I have led myself astray more times than I can count. And a lot of times when I approach the Bible, I have to do this every single morning. I am under the book. Whether we talk about what God hates, we talk about money, we talk about sex, we talk about greed, we talk about parenting, I talk about anger, drunkenness, is my life under the book? Because I have screwed myself many times trusting in myself. And for a lot of us today, as I was preparing this, I was thinking, this is my prayer and I hope it's some of yours prayer. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. When I approach a sermon that maybe not, it doesn't feel applicable to me, maybe I'm not married, maybe, you know, I feel like I never would, I don't think it's really where I'm at, I don't struggle with that, it's not, you know, I kind of fill in the blank, I have to approach it and say, God, would you protect me? God, would you help me to never fall into that mindset? And would I not trust my heart because the heart is what? Deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? So no matter what comes up in the next couple of moments, and if you are frustrated, if you think that that is not true, if you don't think I'm you know, addressing this issue or whatever correctly, I would ask that you would simply look to this. That we would say, God, you are the standard. That no matter what my feelings or emotions say, would I take heed lest ye fall. So before we jump into Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, I want to look at regrets from Solomon, a sex addict. Yeah, sweet, we're in church. The regrets that this man has, and I started off telling a story about how you would communicate something to someone very important to you. If I need to tell my wife something very important, there's a certain way I address the conversation, right? Maybe I show up with flowers. Maybe I, you know, give her a gift card or I brought coffee or whatever. Or I'll buy pizza. My wife's big pizza. You know, I'll, I'll come with an, an offering, right, to address something very important. Parents, when you want to talk to your kids, how do you address the conversation? 
Maybe it's in the car because it's the only time you can talk to them, but they're on their phone. Maybe you text them, I don't know. You, uh, you approach the conversation in a certain way. Maybe married couples, it's right before you go to bed and you are praying to God, it does not lead to a what? Fight. When you have regrets and you're seeking to give someone advice, those of us taking advice, we have two options. We can either take the advice and heed the instruction or we can say, I will learn on my own. Solomon is giving advice to his son and his sons. We'll see here in a moment. But it says in Ecclesiastes chapter two, the same writer says this, Ecclesiastes two and seven, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. This also was vanity. He says this, I got many concubines and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So what's a concubine? It says in the Bible he had 700 wives. Just think, how many conversations did he need to have on a daily basis? 700 wives and 300 concubines, First Kings would say. What's a concubine? It is lesser than a wife, but it was there for his sexual pleasure. And he had his eyes, whatever his eyes needed, he took. And here's the crazy thing about Solomon. He has, and we'll talk next week a little bit about this, he has more money than you've ever had, He's had more sex than anyone has ever had or maybe in comparison to. He had everything he needed and he got to the end and he said, I didn't keep from them. In Ecclesiastes 7, he said this, I find something more bitter than death. If I was talking to my grandma or grandpa and they said, there's something worse than dying, I would listen. The sinner is taken by her while adding one thing to another. My soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found none. He's saying if you, if you seek to have sex or from a sex addict, he's saying if you search for sex to bring meaning to your life, it will actually leave your glass empty. His life was, in one regards, a bucket with holes, constantly trying to fill. So we're going to look at four quick lessons from Solomon in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. The first lesson from Solomon is in Proverbs chapter 5. If you'd pull it up for me, 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated with her love. Yeah, you didn't know the Bible said that, did you? Some of you are like, in time, breast, what's that verse? I mean, there's always some college guy trying to get a tattoo of Proverbs 5, 19. But here's what is important to know. Solomon is teaching this lesson. What you have and who you have, oh, you guys don't know me that well, so you guys are like, I can't believe he said that. <laughs> who you have is all you need. That's the first lesson from Solomon. He's addressing his son, and he says in uh, chapter 5, verse 7, oh, sons, he's addressing multiple, drink water from your own cistern. Don't be running around trying to fill what cannot satisfy. And what Solomon teaches, and make sure we got to be very clear, God invented sex. It was his idea. I say this every time. The devil didn't like sneak that one in on God and Holy Spirit's like, shoot, get it out of there. It wasn't that God is pulling from, but rather he's giving to. 
And when his design for sex, he knows a little bit more about sex than I do, right? Or maybe than we do. He's been around for a long time. And he says, when we have sex, there's a way in which to do it. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That the purpose is that we would be committed to each other. First Corinthians 7, it would say that when he, Paul, he addresses the, the sex issue in Corinth and he says that it is for the husband and the wife, that they would be given themselves to each other. All I have is all I need. The second lesson from Solomon, Proverbs 5, 23. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. So he addresses this issue of discipline. What is discipline and why does it matter and why are we talking about it when it comes to adultery? Adultery, in its simplest form, there's a lot of debate about this guy Solomon. Did he actually commit the sin of adultery because he was married to his wives, married to his concubine? Um, I would take the stance that he does simply because of what a concubine is by definition. But he is constantly, if you read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, he is bringing up the word discipline, discipline, discipline. He says you are either saved by your discipline in verse, chapter 5, verse uh, 12 to 14. He says you're at the brink of utter ruin when you die for discipline. Discipline is something that is supposed to hold us, right? And whether we're talking about sex, we're talking about money, we're talking about parenting, no matter the case, if I'm following Christ, discipline is going to come up. It, it always is. How am I going to die to myself and follow God in this one area of my life? that myself cannot be the standard. So when he's bringing up discipline, I believe that the safest bet or the safest way to be disciplined is this. I need a fence in my life to remain disciplined. I need a fence in my life to remain disciplined. And I thought about a way to illustrate this. So uh, I showed you a picture last week of my daughter and she's starting to crawl. And so, which is really screwing us up. She you know, is crawling around. I'm, I'm like, I want to lock her down in the basement. Nothing there, nothing that's going to get to her or whatever. She can't screw anything up. She's pulling trash cans down. I mean, it's a mess. I don't know what we're going to do. We got one and I'm like, we're out, we're done. So, but what do we have to do so she doesn't fall, right? Or fall down the stairs or stay in a room. We put up a fence. Is this wise? I don't know. I have no idea. I just know that it's probably safest. She don't go tumbling down the steps, right? I would, I mean, you'd question me as a parent if that happened all the time, just kept rolling down. So we put up a fence. <laughs> now, when it comes to my life, there are certain areas of my life that I need a fence. Why? I don't trust myself. Sin always makes you stupid, makes me stupid. Sin makes me do stupid things makes me rationalize. It makes me put myself in a different camp. Sexual sin makes you really, really dumb. And when we're adults, I mean, we're, we're all adults here, maybe for the most part, besides the baby's crying or whatever. But for adults, what is something we value? Freedom. I am an adult. I don't need offense. I don't need accountability. Fences make me feel childish, Mike. I'm 27 years old. What type of fence would I need? But what is more childish is an adult falling down the steps every day and never putting a safeguard up. I need a fence in my life, which means no secrets, 
which, which, which means my wife has access to anything she wants. That if I make a mistake, I set the fence back up. I set it back up on top of the steps so I don't fall. Because I know myself. I'm too dumb. I'll make myself the, 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 the person who doesn't need a fence. You know, I, you know, it was only that one time, or it's only once a month, or it's only this one time. And when he's addressing adultery, he's addressing stay disciplined, and if you don't have discipline, you'll die for the lack of it. And because I want to be disciplined, I want to remain disciplined. I have fences in my life, no matter how childish they feel. Now, why does he keep saying, my son, my son, my son? Why doesn't he bring up the ladies? Why is it always the guys? It's always the guys getting blasted on this one. Uh, most commentators would say if he was addressing his daughter or someone else, he would have said daughter. That it could be mutually accepted, whether it's son or it is a daughter. He says, my son, my son, my son. And a lot of times, it's always just the guys getting blasted on a sex sermon, which I do not believe is accurate. I believe both of us, male or female, is being addressed from the Bible. Just to, because I have to, and there's always this question comes up, does God not care about Old Testament characters who had multiple wives? So I'm going to be super quick, just for a little bit of nerd time Sunday morning with Mike. Um, Old Testament, I I had a guy actually say to me one time, um, David had multiple wives, Solomon had multiple wives, I have the same sex drive as Solomon, therefore I should have as many wives as Solomon. Sin makes you really dumb. And so I've had, had the conversation in Genesis 2, God created one man, one woman, one lifetime. In Exodus 20, 17, the seventh commandment, many of you would know, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then when Jesus was pinned in Matthew 19 from the Pharisees about polygamy, multiple wives, he says, Genesis 2, one man, one woman, one lifetime. And when we read the descriptions of the deacons, right, and and even the elders, you guys have known, it's a one-woman man faithful to his wife. And there's this thing in the Bible that's called prescriptive and descriptive. And again, nerd time. Don't be Googling stuff. Just, just chill. <laughs> just because something happened in the Bible doesn't mean that God loved it. Just because he allowed something to take place doesn't mean it is always to take place. And yes, I believe the qualification for deacon or elder is higher than the king of Israel. Right? Think about that. If you have David, if you have Solomon, these kings of Israel, multiple wives, and God allowed it, doesn't mean that he is not against it. And then I could talk about progressive revelation, how God reveals things from his word. And we have the entire word of God. But because God allowed something, doesn't mean it is acceptable. Lesson number three, Proverbs chapter six. My son, there it is again, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. And when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline, there it is again, are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. And here's the question. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Nope. Or can can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Nope. So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. If I play with fire, I will get burnt. 
Parents, yeah, kids running around trying to grab the stove, always in high school. We would build a fire, what? And we were trying to build the fire as high as we could. I would run and we would jump and take pictures or whatever. Who can jump over the fire? If I play with fire, I will get burnt. He is teaching his son a lesson. Has there ever been a time when your parents, I've heard stories of this, I've never experienced it, when the parents will give advice to their kids but they don't listen? I've never, I mean, I, I think there was one time, one time I can think of this happening. Um, I was 20, and uh, we just had finished school, and we were leaving, and I remember I, I felt like I was in love, and I said, Dad, I would like to move her to Ohio before we get married. She was 23. I mean, I, I was head over heels, I thought. He said, eh, she's from Florida. Are you sure? I said, yeah, I think it would be great. We'll kind of test it out, and then she can live with them, and we'll kind of play it by ear. She moved up here, drove, flew down, drove her up, the whole spiel, uh, moved in. It was one of the more miserable three months of my life, and uh, I, I still remember sitting there. In, we were at the store, and I was talking to my dad. I said, hey, last night we broke up. She got to go home. She's got she's to leave tonight. He goes, no, you will drive her home. Oh, so back the car. Just imagine driving. We just broke up. We left at like two in the morning and we're just, no, how you doing? Good. We just broke up. I mean, it was like, I moved her all the way up here. We drive down. Imagine, I mean, we approached a toll. Who's going to pay for the toll? Toll. You know, I, I don't know how we approached those situations. Drove her all the way down. I made it there and back in like 20 hours. It was awesome. Uh, got back and my dad said, hey, I knew she wasn't the one, but I told you, you know, to kind of feel it out. And I had to learn the lesson the hard way. Parents, there are times when your children or you have had to learn the hard way. And here's the thing that's tricky about this story. David's secret sin was his son's public sin. If I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, my daughter will only pick up about half of my bad habits. Only about half. Maybe more. She'll be a little bit loud, kind of aggressive, kind of, can be mean sometimes. I like want her to pick up what, what good one I have. I don't know what it is, but I want her to pick it up. Why? Because my bad habits are caught more than taught. She'll pick it up. And Solomon sees David, his father, commit the secret sin with Bathsheba, and it was his public sin. Now, is this always the case and always normative in the Bible? No, but it is a principle that sometimes takes place. It's a lesson. And who is David's? David's son is Solomon. Solomon's son that I believe he's addressing is in 1 Kings chapter 12 is Rehoboam. And if you know anything about Rehoboam, the guy really blew it right after his dad. Didn't listen to any advice, didn't take any instruction. So because I know about maybe generational sin or someone to break the chain, whatever it is, I need to decide this phrase. A, A glass door life is the safest life. It's the safest. Accountability is always tough because of, you know, I'm only accountable as I want to be or how much they want to be or whatever. A glass door life is the safest life. So my, my screen is facing this way, that anyone can see anything, that when I'm sent a message that I probably should not see or read, I go like this, Hope, you need to take that one. Will you delete and block that, a, that I'm not going to act or be ignorant to the approaches of sin, so I live a glass door life. And number four, the fourth lesson from Solomon in Proverbs 7. With much seductive speech, she persuades him with her smooth talk, she compels him 
All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till, it's, till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The fourth lesson from Solomon is it costed him more than he was willing to pay. Uh, there's a movie, I'm like super obsessed with it right now. It's on Netflix. It's called Social Dilemma. Uh, it's kind of like about how these big tech companies and Facebook and Instagram, they, you know, they just advertise to you. Have you ever been talking about something and it popped up uh, on your screen, right? You're like talking about a grill. This happened to us. I'm like, yeah, I want to buy this grill. And then I talked to my wife about it. Next thing I know, it was on the radio that day. And then like I put up my phone. There's like this big advertisement. Can't run away from it. And your phone's like, buy this grill, right? It's these algorithms that kind of catch you and lead you into buying these. Sin is the ultimate algorithm that knows you, knows your weak spots, and knows how to lead you astray. It costs us more than we want to pay. Solomon said his, his advice to his son is sexual sin always costs us more than we want to pay. And, and, and we know that's the cycle. Sin makes you do more than you thought you'd do, say what you never thought you'd say, and be who you never thought you'd I always talk about when I'm discussing this with someone, we talk about the obedience cycle. That naturally I should want to obey because of what the Bible says. But sometimes I know that's, that's not, you're not feeling it. That's not there. That's not enough. And then we will talk about the cost. The family repercussions, the individual repercussions, and we talk about what sin will cost us. And it, Solomon says it costs your life. It just ruins everything. Ruins everything. So the question you might be asking is this, does God actually expect me to stay pure and only have one? And some of you might, you're like, whoa, who has ever said that? I know a lot of you maybe have had conversations with someone or you have said this. This question has been asked to me before. Michael, that, this thing is, this thing's old. It's thousands of years old. I mean, God didn't anticipate 2020. He couldn't anticipate the iPhone. There's, I mean, there's no way the sexual drive. I mean, it's, it's different now than it was then. Well, the sinful heart has never changed. The, the weight of our sin has never changed. It has always been leading us astray. Well, it says in 2, Timothy, or 2 Peter 1, 3, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. That Galatians 5.16, that if I walk by the Spirit, I will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the one that I usually turn to is 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The way I'll talk to some younger people, the way of escape is not 1 a.m. on the couch watching Netflix. The way of escape is what? At 11. That when you typically think the way of escape is approaching, and if you miss it, you probably have missed the way of escape. Probably. And Jesus provides a solution and addresses a problem that none of us necessarily like. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery in Matthew 5. So I'm, I'm good. He said, you shall not. That's what the Ten Commandments are. That's what it says. That's, that's good for me and maybe good for you. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Jesus does this so that every single person in the room goes like this. That none of us get to approach God and say, well, at least, at least I was better than my neighbor. I was better than that guy. I didn't do what he did. And then he gives a solution. If your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He's so practical. I mean, shoot, let's get the saws out. Like, I mean, we got to go. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of like walking around like this, you know, no, no hands, no eyes. I mean, the solution is there. I love it. Thank you, Jesus. No, right? He's addressing this type of thing because, because he knows that sometimes when you're not feeling it and your heart is not there yet, you have to put up things in your life so that your heart can get there. We're not gonna do an Old Testament sacrifice this after the service, bring up the iPhones and the computer, burn them, cut it off. But I believe obedience is always personal and it addresses us personally. And maybe not always, but maybe sometimes. Maybe not having it by my bed, but having the phone there. Maybe having the password available to this person. Maybe having the, addressing the issue. Because sexual sin always scars I will never forget the first time I saw porn. I was 10 years old. I was at my friend's house. He said, hey, come here, I wanna show you something. Walked into his room, pulled open the drawer, moved his Bible, pulled up a picture. I was 10. It scars us. It affects us. And the way that one pastor put it was so good. Either Jesus is on the throne and I'm on the cross dying to myself of my life, or I'm on the throne and I leave him on the cross. That I have to be willing to go like this and submit to whatever he says. Whatever he says. So, maybe for some of you, you're kind of like, well, great, doom and gloom Sunday. Right, what are we supposed to do now? What's the application? Maybe some of these you can take away, but I want to address when Jesus talked to someone In the act of adultery, in John chapter 8, Jesus says this, or it says in John 8, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. Can you imagine? Think about that. Everyone knows, not like your friends at school and people at your workplace, everyone in the town hall Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And if I have a question for Jesus, it's that. What do you say? What about my mistakes? What do you say, Jesus? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. He said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Before I start judging everyone, let me be the first. Let me evaluate my life. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Jesus was left alone with the woman. And Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So Jesus forgives He releases, and then he reminds. That he does take it seriously. And it says in Revelation 12, 10, when it talks about the devil, it says, who accuses them day and night before God. 
A lot of you may have some past issues with sexual sin or maybe in your marriages and maybe God's restored it and maybe anytime this stuff comes up, it brings guilt and shame, which in John chapter eight sometimes is self-inflicted. Every sexual regret you have, I have, is redeemable when you come to Christ. Every single one. Every regret that I hold on to. And a lot of times when it comes to sin, even in general, or specifically sexual sin, what we do is this. And some of you have seen this, you're kind of waiting uh, to see what is behind me. But um, what we do with sexual sin in our past is we go like this. It becomes all that I see. It's a little bit dirty. It's a little bit broken. It's messed up. And a lot of times, it's self-inflicted. So when I drive down East Market in Revelation 12.10, those who accuse me day and night, the devil is in my ear. When I drive down Curtis Avenue, the devil is in my ear, bringing it up. And my past becomes my future. It becomes all that I see and all that I am. That I am not able to hear that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I'll say, God, what about my past? When I read in 2 Corinthians that anyone in Christ is a new creation, I will say, yeah, but you don't know about my past. When I go to have sex the way God has designed it for in marriage and I have a past, I'll say, but you don't know about my past. And it's not my rear view mirror, it's all that I see. And when we do that, when I do that, and when you do that, we disrespect what God has done on the cross. Letting all of it go when you come to him. Let me pray. God, we thank you for the reminder of how good you are. God, we thank you for the reminder of forgiveness and even the act of adultery. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to this house justified rather than the other. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Would that be our prayer? And God, anyone in here struggling with sexual regrets, I pray that they would come to you and that there would be no condemnation for them, that the self-inflicted shame that they feel they would be freed from. And God, would we all have the prayer of Jude one twenty four? keep us from stumbling. Would you protect us? Would you protect our marriages? And God, would you help us to be faithful to our wives and to our husbands as long as we have breath? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.